Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the more interesting stories of the week was that of the first marijuana breathalyzer that we're going to be getting. It's being made by a California startup called Hound Labs. And while drug testing can tell if someone has used marijuana in the last several days to weeks, none of these things can actually tell if someone has just smoked or is currently high. This breathalyzer aims to change all of that. We spoke to Erin Broadwin. She's a science reporter at Business Insider to talk about who is behind it and where law enforcement is going to be trying this all out. The company behind it is a company, as you said, called Hound Labs. They're a startup. They're based in Oakland, which is actually right in my backyard. I live in Oakland as well. They've so far raised quite a lot of money for this device, which is going to be the world's first marijuana breathalyzer. It's a device that also measures alcohol. So it's a kind of two-in-one here. It's a marijuana breathalyzer and an alcohol breathalyzer. They've raised $34 million from all sorts of people. Dick Wolf, he's the creator and executive producer of Law & Order, yeah. Snap, Dropbox, WeWork. They're all providing money to this. And the uh, CEO of this is a man named Mike Lynn. If anybody was going to do this, it's him. He has such an impressive resume. And each field that he's worked in has been touched by the cannabis industry. Tell us a little bit about Mike Lynn. I was so surprised to see that. I actually got to sit down with him and talk with him about the device. And when I looked into his background, I was like, wow, if anyone was going to create this marijuana breathalyzer, yeah, it would definitely be him. His background is right now he's an active SWAT team member. He's a reserve deputy sheriff. He's a professor of emergency medicine. And he's also a former biotech venture capitalist. So he really has worked in every single field that you could imagine that's been touched by cannabis. And as it gets legalized, definitely that's going to play a big role here. Let's talk about the device now and its practical applications. First off, we know how tough it is to detect. I mean, you can do a blood test for marijuana, for THC in somebody's blood system, but this has to do with testing somebody who's smoked recently. Basically, you're high now and you're impaired and you can't be driving. But everybody has a different tolerance to it. How can you tell if somebody is too high? Let's talk about that first, because there is no clearly defined legal limit for driving after using marijuana. Right, exactly. So there are so many things here. As you probably know, there's tons of drug tests out there that can tell if you have used marijuana in the last few days, maybe few months, but there's no device out there quite yet that tells if you've used marijuana in the last couple hours. Cannabis actually reaches its peak concentrations in the brain and body roughly two to three hours after you've smoked. It's a pretty short window there. And this device allegedly can detect THC in the breath, just like with a breathalyzer, you actually blow into the device and it can tell if you've smoked in the last two to three hours. And that's a pretty big deal. There's no other no other technology out there that can do that. When I talked to Mike Lynn, the, the founder of this company, he said it took them years to kind of nail down that science because THC, the central problem here was that THC is present in the breath, but in such low, low, low concentrations that it's really hard to detect. So what they spent the last couple of years doing with their technology is trying to get it sensitive enough to detect that. I think the vaping or smoking would probably be similar. What this device probably will not be able to look at, however, are edibles, which are also increasingly 
popular. And then you, there's another issue that you brought up earlier as well that I think is really important, which is can this device tell if you have smoked recently? And Lynn is telling us, yes, it can. And then the second question is, can it tell us if you're impaired? Because you may have smoked, but you may not be severely impaired. Yeah. And the science on impaired driving under the influence of cannabis is pretty, it's in its very, very early stages. I mean, you have some studies that suggest, yeah, people who smoke and drive are incredibly dangerous. You have other studies that suggest, well, people who smoke and are very experienced users of marijuana know their tolerance. And so the, the kind of comparative thing that I like to make here is with alcohol, you have a, the tolerance is very set. It's a 0.08. You blow a 0.08 or right. above that and you are legally impaired. With marijuana, we don't have that yet. The impairments are slower reaction time, bad motor coordination, issues with attention and decision making. How does the marijuana, the Hound Labs marijuana breathalyzer actually work? The device, they have patents on the technology, but what I was able to discern from them is that what they're doing is they created this device. They're being a little opaque about the technology because they want to protect it from other people infringing on their invention. But essentially, they've tested the technology against what's known as a mass spectrometer, which can look at the volume of a certain drug in aerosol. They're essentially saying, like, against this gold standard of a mass spectrometer, can this test detect THC. And they have two clinical trials that they have not shared publicly quite yet, but one of them suggests indeed that they can do that. And they blow into a device for roughly a minute. I don't know how many people can blow into something for a full minute. <laughs> so that's kind of there. But And then the device returns a positive or negative result. So yes, Correct. you have smoked within the past hour or two, whatever, whatever it is, but it doesn't deliver a reading on concentration, like how much Precisely. Yeah. So it will tell you yes or no, you've smoked or you have not, but it won't say, oh, you smoked a little bit. Oh, you smoked barely anything. Oh, you smoked a lot. There's already people that want it now and will be testing, uh, doing some pilot tests. Who is going to be using it r right away? He told me that an undisclosed division of law enforcement was going to be using it shortly in a pilot project. The other group that's going to be using it is it's a trade union that represents, I think, around 40,000 construction workers in Northern California. And that's an interest because when I talked to the person in charge there, he said, you know, if we drug test for marijuana right now with the test that we have, we have no workers because a lot of workers, a lot of people want to use marijuana. <laughs> right. But what we need is a test that prevents people from essentially prevents people from smoking on the job. So they need a test that says, OK, you've smoked in the last couple hours or you're high, etc. Aaron Broadwin, senior science and tech reporter at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. There's always tons of political news going on. But my favorite story this week was that of the new cliques that are forming in the Congress. The freshman Democrats are all forming alliances. You know, they want to get friendships, but also influence. There's influence in, in voting blocks and groups. But it's turning out to be just like high school. Sarah Ferris, she's a congressional reporter for Politico, did a story on all the freshman cliques that are going on in the House. So we start off by talking about the main groups right now. is the Gang of Nine, the Squad and the big six. These are basically the groups that we've seen self-forming in the first couple of weeks of Congress. And this, this tends to happen when there's a new Congress. There's a lot of new members. These guys met on the campaign trail. They've been supporting each other for a while. But what's really interesting about this year is that the groups really do fit into pretty 
neat little circles. So the one that's really been fun to cover is the Gang of Nine. As you said, this is the group that comes from some sort of a military background, and they tend to be more moderate. They're pushing a big national security agenda. It's run by current Representative Seth Moulton. He's a Democrat from Massachusetts who also served in the military, and he had helped a lot of these guys with fundraising, and so they were all endorsed by his group. So they were sort of lumped together from that. Nearly all of them beat out Republicans in the last election, so they've had kind of a moderate slant. And, you know, you'd think that they would have meetings to talk about policy and and exactly where to prioritize their national defense issues, but they end up talking about a lot more than you'd expect. They talk about their families, Halloween costumes. They're buying Girl Scout cookies from Abigail Spanberger, who's one of the most high-profile members of this group, having won the surprise election, beating a former Republican, Dave Bratt. And they're just really having a lot of fun together. They're saving seats for each other on the House floor. They're getting offices next to each other. That's one of the funny parts, because uh, Representative Abigail Spanberger, in your story, you mentioned right after freshman orientation, It was time to grab an office or she wanted to grab it next to her friends, the the gang of nine. But there was this kind of thing. She hadn't seen the office. She didn't know if she should grab it. I didn't know that that's how it worked. It's basically open offices and you got to call dibs on the one that you want. (laughs) And as you're saying, you know, she did get the office there with her friends. And now they text every day in group chats. And like you said, they save seats for each other. So it's just kind of funny how everybody forms together in these things. And it's a really high-risk situation, to be honest, to pick an office that you haven't seen, that your staff hasn't had a chance to check out, just because you want to sit next to someone who you've gotten close with to keep this friendship up. I mean, I imagine there were a few staffers in her office who were a little peeved that they didn't have a chance to actually see the layout. This is going to be a decision that sits with them for two years, at least. That's been a really funny moment, and we did hear that sort of thing. Even just walking around Rayburn and Cannon, some of the buildings around here, you can see freshmen's names on doors next to each other, and a lot of them do have these relationships, either they came from similar states, like came from the same state with similar districts, similar backgrounds. There's the physical evidence on the doors and, and who's next to who, as well as looking at them when they're on the house floor and who's kind of huddling together. It's just really fun to watch right. over the last couple of weeks. Let's get on to the next group. It's the squad. It includes Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is making news like every single day. <laughs> I know, her Twitter account, I just need to get alerts so I don't miss any news. We've got three other members as well. These are all freshman Democrats, all younger women of color. We have Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib. All four of them have really had a lot of fun. They, they all have very prolific social media accounts so that when they're posting, they're hashtagging squad, they're hashtagging unity type things. They're really connecting with millions of people. Between the four of them, they have millions of Twitter followers, millions of Instagram followers. And they've definitely set up a way to influence the policy here as well. They've taken stances on everything from ending the shutdown to some of the, the bigger bills, background check bills universal background checks that just came up. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was one of those who threatened to vote against it after this last minute. Immigration-related amendment got added in there. She eventually did vote for it, but these four really do have an outsized influence as freshman members of the caucus, given their pretty significant social media followings. And then the last group that you profiled is the Big Six. These are the highest-ranking freshman Democrats. They attend a lot of the party strategy meetings, and these are the ones that are expected to rise into leadership positions later on. Yeah, we 
kind of joke that these guys are like the overachievers. Two of them are actually class presidents, which is a title that just brings you right back to high school when you hear it. <laughs> so those class presidents were elected. And there are four other members who sit on what's called the steering committee, which helps influence committee assignments. And then two others sit in on leadership meetings. And these are names that I think we'll hear a lot more of over the next couple of weeks. Lauren Underwood, Katie Hill, Jonah Goose, Haley Stevens, Deb Halan, Colin Allred. These are a lot of really impressive young freshmen who started to make a name for themselves, whether it's staging press conferences during the shutdown, leading a kind of march over to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's office to try and take a stand on ending the shutdown. They're actually sitting down and meeting with senior Democratic leaders on a regular basis to try and make the, make the views of the freshman class really known to the rest of the caucus. And what's really notable is that there are so many new freshmen. There's dozens and dozens, about 63 new freshmen in a class. They represent almost a quarter of the freshman class. We talked about uh, how they get together because of friendship, but also the influence, you know, they're going to band together when pieces of legislation, uh, you know, either benefit them or they, they're co-sponsoring them, things like that. And But also when things are you know, show up that they don't necessarily agree with. Uh, you know, one group can want to vote another way if they're more moderate. Obviously, the squad, as we were calling them, uh, you know, they're a lot more progressive. So some of those cracks can even show. Uh, it, it's just a very fun story. I suggest everybody go through it. Uh, and the next mission is to find out all the other groups because there's, uh, you mentioned some older groups called the Pink Ladies, the Pennsylvania Corner. And I just want to know <laughs> what group every single person belongs to because it's such a fun idea. <laughs> Sarah Ferris, congressional reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Philadelphia has become the first major city to ban cashless stores. Lawmakers want to maintain access for the marketplace for lower income consumers that may not have credit and debit cards. But Amazon and other businesses are expressing concerns about limits on innovation. Remember, they wanted to start their first cashless store, Amazon Go. We spoke to Scott Calvert. He's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal to talk about the debate over going cashless. I mean, it is still a very small minority of retail stores that are right. cashless. By and large, most places you go, they're happy to take your, your dollar bills and coins in addition to plastic. But what happened was there's a city councilman named William Greenlee who, who said he just noticed that there were a number of sandwich places downtown in Philadelphia that had gone cashless. And that concerned him because there are a lot of people in Philadelphia who who don't have a credit or debit card and would essentially be shut out of places like that. And that was the impetus behind the, the legislation that passed the city council and that uh, the mayor of Philadelphia, Jim Kenney, signed on Thursday. And it'll take effect in July. There are some exemptions. They did carve out certain categories. So like parking garages, wholesale clubs like BJ's or Costco are also excluded. Rental car companies, uh, hotels, which need your credit card for incidentals, all of those don't fall under this. You mentioned Amazon Go. It, it's interesting because there was an attempt to carve them out as well for Amazon Go. And evidently, the language that wound up in the law doesn't quite do the trick. Because... <laughs> yeah, it's like almost there, but not just quite. Right. It's almost there. It basically describes the Amazon Go model, except they use the word membership. And the, the catch there is you have to have an Amazon account to shop at Amazon Go, but you don't have to have a prime membership. And so according to the city, Amazon just doesn't think that quite does the trick. And so there, I think there's a concern about whether Amazon Go would be compliant under this new law. 
Right. And and this sets up the debate, really, whether you're going to be stifling retail innovation. A lot of people see this as the future. Even some lawmakers are even saying, you know, this is the future. It's not just a fad. It's going to be coming like that. And particularly, let's say in Atlanta, they have Mercedes-Benz Stadium there. They're going to be the first NFL stadium to go fully cashless. Even if you don't have a credit card or a debit card, they have these little reverse ATM machines where you can put in cash and it'll give you a card so you can be able to use it. They say that there's safety benefits for it because you don't have to carry the cash and all. And they could even lower food prices. And that actually is the case. Pricing there was always in whole dollars with tax and all that stuff. So now they can bring down the cost. I think their hot dogs are going to be $1.50, some of their burgers $7.50. They're able to bring some of those costs down. But it is coming. These cashless models are going to be popping up a lot more. City council member in Philadelphia who sponsored the bill there. And there's a city council member in New York City who has similar legislation that's working its way through the process. Both of them said the same thing, that precisely because it's nascent at this point, now is a good time to put a law on the books because, you know, in the case of Philadelphia, I don't know exactly, they don't know exactly how many businesses there are that are only accepting cash. It's basically a handful. And so the idea is, you know, to put this in place before the, the trend can really gallop along too much, too much further. But to your point about it coming, the mayor, while he signed it, I think has some concerns. And a member of his administration, who is an official with the city's Department of Commerce, when she was talking to city council about this last month, she made that point that, you know, that this is coming and and modernization is going to happen regardless of what laws Philadelphia might have on the books. And there's definitely a concern that Philadelphia will be hurt, you know, that it, it will not be as competitive and might deter some businesses from locating there. They don't want that to happen. And so the way that she was describing it is she was essentially saying she hopes that this is a temporary measure, that it's kind of a pause where it gives the city a little bit of breathing room to figure out what to do about those people who are quote-unquote, unbanked and don't have a bank account, don't have a credit card, and figure out sort of how those folks would be able to participate in a cashless environment in a way that they can now. Because you can get a prepaid debit card, but there are fees associated with that. And so, you know, if you're somebody who has dollars in your pocket, the idea of, of having to essentially, you know, pay something to put that onto a card that you can then use at a store probably wouldn't seem like a good trade. Let's talk about how people do use cash because consumers still use cash for about 30% of all payments. And beyond that, uh, lower income people use cash uh, more increasingly. Federal Reserve put out a study that found that the cash is a little bit less popular over the last few years. In 2017, which is the most recent year, I think it was about 30% of all transactions involve cash. And that was down a couple percentage points from the previous few years. And of course, for those low dollar purchases, it's much more common. I right. think 55% of all transactions under 10 bucks were paid using cash. So cash is still very you know popular, obviously. <laughs> right. And in terms of this unbanked issue, I mean, the FDIC estimates that there are about 8 million U.S. households that are unbanked, which again means you know, in their definition, you don't have a bank account, a credit card. That's not a small number of people. It's obviously a small fraction of yeah. the overall population, but it's a lot of people. Increasingly, it's just right. so much easier now to not use cash, whether you have it on your cards or you have it on your phone, even. The trend is going that way. What's interesting, though, is that a lot of businesses, if you think about it, they really appreciated being paid in cash because they can avoid the transaction fee that they have to pay to the credit card company or the bank. And so it is sort of interesting to see a, this move away from cash. But the flip side is, as as you said, you know, there are safety issues. If you don't have cash in the store, then maybe you're less of a risk for robbery. You know, you don't have employees like walking to the bank to make deposits with a lot of cash. And particularly for these food establishments, the cashless model 
is appealing because it's just faster. If you're trying to make as much money as you can during the lunch rush and you don't have to count out change for customers, oh, yeah. you can sell a lot more of whatever it is that you are, are selling. And so I think there's some appeal there for that reason. Scott Calvert, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.